Dude, Jay, I am so excited about Clandestine. We're finally going to get to cover Ravenscroft. Really, Miles? It's just an old manor house. I mean, I guess the sensory deprivation room's kind of cool, but... Just an old manor house? Okay, it is Marvel's Arkham Asylum. There were werewolves! Dracula used to hang out there! Oh. Oh, oh, Miles, you mean Ravencroft Institute. The Destins live at Ravenscroft Manor. Totally different place. Aw, so... so no Dracula? No Dracula. I'm sorry, buddy. Uh, well, what ended up happening to the Institute anyway? Didn't it get destroyed or something? Yeah, but they rebuilt it. That seems unwise. Well, the idea was to make it a proper psychiatric hospital this time. The idea? Well, it's harder to pull off in reality when the reconstruction is spearheaded by... The carceral state? The kingpin. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 335 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to a non-standard episode in a couple of ways. One way we were expecting, and one way we definitely weren't. Yeah, so I'm recording from a hotel right now, which is was expected. Um... What was not expected was that the Wi-Fi would be quite as iffy as it is, which may be a byproduct of another unexpected feature, which is that the entirety of the Miss New York pageant is staying here as of this evening, and they're really, really loud. So, um, yeah, I guess that's happening. I mean, maybe some of them have strong X-Men opinions? We don't know. Yeah, T was suggesting that I go outside and just yell who wants to be on an X-Men podcast, but it just seems too much like going out during a zombie movie. Yeah, okay, that's that's fair. I mean, Miss New York contestants are known for their cannibalism, as I understand. Yeah, man, like, you see a bunch of them walk into the room, they walk back out, there are just, like, nothing but stripped bones left. Oh, brutal. Uh, what's less brutal is the comic we're going to be talking about today. We are going to be talking about an X-Men crossover with another book called clandestine, or possibly clandestine. I'm not sure, it's written down. That being Alan Davis's superhero series that started in the mid-90s, and being written and drawn by Alan Davis is charming as hell. It's really delightful, and man, it's it's been too long since we've talked about an Alan Davis book here. It totally is! So, okay, if we have any listeners who have come onto the show with more recent episodes, you may not know that Alan Davis is an artist and sometimes writer who I think we first discovered in his seminal run on Captain Britain with Alan Moore way back in the day. He later was the artist for the first large chunk of Excalibur and the writer and artist for another large chunk of Excalibur, and his work is universally delightful. Yeah, the Davis written and drawn Excalibur is, I think, the series at its best. I completely agree. I mean, I love me that Claremont dialogue from the early part, but but Davis's is maybe even better. So, Davis, in addition to being a really fantastic artist and very, very good writer, is an inveterate fan of superhero comics and team comics, um, and he wanted to develop new characters without existing continuity, but within the Marvel Universe. 
Because, you know, if you can have, like, MODOK and the Silver Surfer and Spider-Man in your comic, why wouldn't you? I mean, I think of reasons. I suppose. Davis decided to go with a family as the stars of his book, because you can't really choose your family, so he figured, hey, that's a good opportunity for both positive and negative dynamics, a lot of good soap opera stuff, and as we know, soap opera is one of the best parts of comics. He also liked the idea of superhumans who mostly weren't particularly interested in or invested in the tights game, with you know one minor exception. So, Clandestine technically first appeared in a 1994 issue of Marvel Comics Presents. That was number 158. It's hard to track down, but as I understand it, it's just one of four stories. It's very short. There were also stories about Vengeance, who was like, what if Ghost Rider, but more Ghost Rider. There was the New Warriors, there was Shang-Chi, and... Uh, it's basically just a straightforward fight scene. The team fights a robot. It turns out that was a robot one of the family members built to convince the kids that they didn't want to be superheroes, but it just makes them want to be superheroes even more. Mainly, though, it's just an opportunity for Alan Davis to show off his incredibly fun character designs. As it may have been audible, I feel like I should qualify that there's also a train reel near this hotel. Is it full of Miss New York contestants as well? I don't, I don't know. I mean, isn't everywhere at this point? I guess so. So, Clandestine mainly was a 12-issue series starting in the mid-90s. Sort of. Because Alan Davis only wrote and drew the first eight of those issues. Numbers 9 through 12 were by a different creative team entirely. So, what Davis ended up doing um, was writing basically an alternate four-issue ending for the series, which was an X-Men crossover, which is what we're going to be looking at primarily today. But we figured, because as it turns out, we love Clandestine. Like, Jay, this was your first time reading it as well, right? It was, yeah. So we're going to talk about the X-Men stuff, don't get us wrong. I mean, we are an X-Men podcast, but given that the X-Men crossover, like you were just saying, is essentially the end of the main series, we figured we'd do sort of a big kind of uh, bird's eye view of the main series as well. So let's just talk about clandestine in general. Let's talk about the premise to start. Delightful but weird. So we've got two focal characters. There's Rory, Crimson Crusader, and Pandora, who's imp. They're twins, they're teenagers, and they are superheroes. And they're pretty sure they're mutants. They have gravity powers for Rory, light powers for Pandora, and it's the mid-90s, and pretty much everybody was a mutant at that point, so to be fair, odds would be on their side. Turns out, though, not so much. As it turns out, there's a lot going on in these kids' lives that they don't know about. First of all, no, they're not mutants. They are, they are just part of a family who all have superpowers. And second, their guardians, who they've grown up with, um, as far as they know, their uncle and their grandmother are actually both siblings of theirs. There are also various aunts and uncles and family friends, all of whom are, in fact, long-lived and variously aged siblings because their dad is immortal and their mom is a genie. As happens. So eventually they find out about their origins. The deal is, there was this dude named Adam of Ravenscroft. Not Ravencroft, that's the Marvel Universe's Arkham Asylum, completely unrelated. But Adam was a guy from the 12th century who couldn't die, apparently, or at least who wouldn't stay dead. 
He was impaled on a scythe in an accident and came back to life shortly after, at which point the village renamed him Adam of Destin, or Adam of Destine. Jay, what's your take? I mean, obviously the title of this book is a play on the word clandestine. Do you think that Destin is pronounced just Destin, or is it Destine? I don't know, and I, my, my first thought was that maybe this is maybe this is a British versus American pronunciation thing, and I was going to ask or look it up, and then I didn't, and now it's now. Let's just go with Destin, and if we're completely wrong, then Alan Davis, we personally, each of us, apologize to you. Profoundly. So, if Adam of Destin's origin story, getting impaled, then coming back to life, and everybody being pretty freaked out, sounds familiar, yeah, he sounds a lot like an external. You know, one of the immortal mutants that, in our recent coverage, Celine just killed most of. The difference is that the externals suck. And also that as part of Adam's near-death experience, he had a vision specifically of a woman who granted him new life, as, a, as well as of, you know, a couple things that were going to happen in his upcoming life. Like, there's there's very specific supernatural involvement in his resurrection. Indeed. And there was more supernatural stuff in his future. So he fought in the Crusades. Damn it, Adam. And he ended up getting captured by a warlord who convinced him to go fight this evil wizard who apparently Adam had been prophesized to kill. Now, Adam did end up killing the wizard, but he also ended up having to take out the warlord who was just trying to use Adam to get to the wizard's magical giant crystal which granted any wish. Adam ended up destroying the crystal and discovered that inside there was a trapped djinn named Alife who was the one responsible for granting him immortality. They had a passionate love affair, had a bunch of kids over many, many centuries. And I really appreciate that when we find out about Adam's backstory, which is not in, like, the first issue of the comic, it takes a little bit to get there, he's recounting this part to the teenaged focal characters, Rory and Pandora, and they're getting a little uncomfortable at just how into the sexy part he's starting to get. Now, as technology, and especially information technology, progressed, it got harder and harder for the functionally immortal destines to hide what they were just by moving around, so they enacted something called the Relative Stranger Protocol. That protocol basically and used mostly technology to enable the family to easily replace themselves with their successors. So it didn't look too weird that there was some random dude living in a town that never uh, happened to age. Instead, they would move around, they would change their appearance a little bit, and pick new names, that sort of thing. And most important, they would never gather in one place for too long. Exactly. All of that happens even more so after a big disaster that resulted in the death of one of their siblings, a guy named Vincent. Everybody just sort of scattered at that point, and Adam, the patriarch of the family, he was the one that killed Vincent, although it's implied that was necessary, and he just fucked off into space, at which point the genie, Alalith, Alith, I'm not really sure how you say her name, she headed back to the magic world. So it was just all of the various siblings trying to live normal lives in Earth. You're neglecting one of my favorite, favorite details, which is that Adam headed to space in a VW microbus. Oh, he did. Yeah, okay, I guess we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but 
early on in issue number one, there's this delightful page of the silver surfer, you know, surfing the cosmic spaceways as he does. And it's all majestic and shit. And then all of a sudden, there's just this this hippie van with like peace and love and flowers and pastel colors painted on it. And the silver surfer just comes up and he looks in the broken window and this confused looking dude just looks right back out at him. And like, that's it. That's that's the whole thing that right there. It's like uh, Hemingway's saddest story ever told. But this is Davis's goofiest story ever told in just one page. I'm pretty sure that the Hemingway thing is apocryphally attributed to him. Oh, okay. Well, um, that's just one of the many reasons that Alan Davis is better than Ernest Hemingway. There you go. Also, I don't think that story is necessarily sad. Like, there are a lot of reasons that 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 you wouldn't necessarily use a pair of baby shoes. I mean, maybe somebody just bought some shoes off the internet and they, they got the sizing wrong and so it was baby shoes and they said, huh, these shoes don't fit. I'm not going to wear them. And that's the whole thing. Maybe they just sucked. Oh, they were just really ugly shoes. Yeah. Maybe they came pre-bronzed. Oh, geez. And the baby was like, those are so uncomfortable. Also, I'm very precocious and speaking in complete sentences. Right? Man, babies are picky. Babies are picky. If you take only one lesson from this episode about clandestine listeners, it's that babies are picky when it comes to footwear. Yeah, it's true. Well, anyway, this whole relative stranger protocol, Rory and Pandora, who, remember, think they're mutants and make themselves secret superheroes... Yeah, they messed that whole thing up, and that's where the plot starts. But before we get to the plot, let's talk about the characters, because this is an Alan Davis comic, so of course the characters, both in terms of personality and in terms of visual design, are the best part. Alright, so you mentioned Rory and Pandora already. Let's start there. Okay, so they're superheroes. They are Crimson Crusader and Imp. They're, I don't know, I'd say they're maybe around, like, what, 13, 14, something like that? Yeah, that's about where I'd put them. So their powers manifested earlier than Destin folks' powers tend to. Usually those don't happen for many, many years. It turns out that's because their powers kind of feed off of each other. When they're near each other, Rory can do his gravity stuff and Pandora can do her light stuff. If they're apart, not so much. Normally, I guess their siblings would, like, sit them down and have the talk with them. Now, kids, when a man and a genie hundreds of years ago love each other very much, like, so much, then stuff gets weird. Everyone you know is your sibling. Indeed. Thanks to genie sex. So, personality-wise, I don't know, like, I'm of two minds on this one. These are great characters, but Rory definitely has the stronger personality, and that's part of the deal. Like, his enthusiasm tends to drag his much quieter, lower-key sister around. Like, he's the one that really, really wants to be a superhero, but he can't be unless his sister is nearby because their powers feed off each other. Like, they get along really well, but she seems a little less excited about all the hijinks they get into. Yeah, so their siblings or their 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 guardians have enacted basically a at a version of the well, your kids can drink but only at home system, which is the your kids can go on patrol but only if one if if one of the grown-ups comes with you. Yeah, that doesn't happen until later after the kids have already, like we said, kicked the plot into gear by screwing things up. But I feel like with any of these characters, we have to talk about all of their designs because Alan Davis is such a good character designer. Okay, so Rory is the most generic of generic superheroes. He's got a bright red costume, head sock thing, and a cape, big letter C on his chest, and that's it. That's his deal. Yeah, he's a very, like, gee whiz, can-do kind of character. He's, like, always positive, he's always excited, and so just being, like, 
you know, the red superhero kid, I think really, really works for him. Now, Pandora is not a fan of her costume. Um, it is a pink and white mini dress with a domino mask. It looks very, very 60s mod and apparently used to have a cape that was eventually lost. That actually becomes a plot point, uh, in part because these were just made for the kids as, I think, Halloween costumes by their fashion designer aunt, which is to say sister. Yeah, for a costume party. So these kids were raised, as we mentioned, by their uncle and their grandma, who it turns out were some of one of their brothers and one of their sisters. Walter is their uncle. Their grandma's name is Florence. She dies like the first page she appears. So let's not worry about her. But I love Walter. He's this very serious, responsible guy. He just wants to raise the kids well and keep them safe. And much like Captain Britain in Davis's run, the most serious character that cares the most about dignity is the one that falls on his ass the most, both metaphorically and literally. Absolutely. Now, Walter, by trade, is a romance novelist under a female pseudonym. Um, he is he is the author of a a, a long, 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 long series in which he's increasingly frustrated that he has to kill off his, his protagonist's fiancés over and over because she's, you know, not allowed to settle down with a single person. There's this one great page as he's sort of complaining to himself about this where you see a, a big stack of all the books he's written. It's like Victoria Vanquished, Victoria Victorious, and it just it just keeps going, and I, I love that. I love the idea that once you write enough of these books with that kind of a naming pattern, they start to sound sort of stupid, and I'd imagine the name Victoria stopped sounding like a name to him almost immediately. Power-wise... Walter, when he needs to, can turn into a big blue Hulk-looking guy with, like, flaming red hair. He's super strong, he's gigantic, but because he is this Alan Davis archetype of serious guy that is embarrassed a lot, uh, after he transforms, it takes him a long time to get back to his normal size, and, like, he does it unevenly, so sometimes he'll still have big ears or big feet for a while after. I also appreciate that... As the plot kicks into gear and he has to use his powers more and more, he uh, defaults to having the superhero uniform of a pair of stretchy shorts that say, I believe, Big Boy on the side. I assume that's just, like, the only pair of shorts he could find that fit. It it's so great. Like, I feel bad for Walter, but we all love him. It's just that he he can't have dignity. At one point, he specifies that his superhero costume is just his underwear because that's the item he has that's stretchy enough. Oh, Okay. So he has underwear that says big boy? I feel like that was a... Well, that's that's not the shorts. That's He's he's just wearing like a bikini bottom at one point. Oh, okay. Legit. But uh, yeah, he does not want a superhero name. Of course, the kids are like, everyone has to have a superhero name because it's awesome. They eventually settle on Wallop because it sounds like Walter, and he hates that name so much. And again, it is funny. So the oldest of their siblings is Kay. Kay is over 800 years old, and she is a telepath with the ability to transfer her consciousness to nearby bodies when the body she's occupying dies. Yeah, it's sort of her own super special version of the Relative Stranger protocol. Uh, I think she mentions at one point that at this point she's had over 40 different bodies over the centuries. She usually tries to use available or newly dead bodies, usually... Uh, and then she'll just find a way to uh, have it be revealed through manipulated paperwork that whatever her new body is is actually the heir to the fortune that she had in her old body. Um, she has a lot of different um, appearances as a result of that. There isn't really a single basic K template at any point. Personality-wise, K is 
she can be kind of a jerk. Like, she's very much a self-centered hedonist. She's good with the kids, but she also only really shows up when she feels like it. And she tends to be not always very nice to the other members of the family, especially Walter. In a way, she reminds me a little of Emma Frost. Because she's rich and unpleasant? I mean, kind of that, but also just that level of confidence and competence. I guess. Well, that and the fact that her primary powers are telepathic. Yeah, that too. Her appearance varies a lot, like you mentioned, but for most of the series, she's in the body of a Spanish woman who's a prostitute that she sees getting murdered just as she herself is murdered. And weirdly, like, most of these comics have the same colorist, but that character's skin tone varies wildly from issue to issue. Yeah, I wonder to what extent that's a byproduct of the fact that most of the Destins have greenish skin or slightly off from human appearances. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, most of them, it's pretty subtle. Um, in fact, that leads us to our next of the Destins, Dominic, who sometimes goes by Hex from his old stage magician act. So Dominic, in his natural form, has green skin and bright red Ziggy Stardust hair, and for most of the series, he wears what was his stage magician costume. Um, it's an outlandish outfit with a feathery cape that's a little bit reminiscent of DC's Creeper. Dominic has super-enhanced senses, so he spends a lot of time in an anhechoic chamber? I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. To block out the world's sensory input, but his family interrupts him constantly because that's Alan Davis's humor style. Jay, do you remember the uh, Ben Affleck Daredevil movie where at the beginning uh, Matt Murdock is sleeping in like a sensory deprivation sleep coffin, and then his alarm clock is that Evanescence song played like super, super, super loud? I do. I try not to, but I do. Yeah, it just uh, made me think of that. Um, Dominic's really fun. Uh, he's he's very strange. He's really competent. Like, he's a great detective, he's a great martial artist, he knows Doctor Strange. But then there are things like, when he eats chocolate, it sends him into essentially a dreamlike fugue state because of his enhanced senses. Seems reasonable to me. We have lots of other siblings. I would say the two we can briefly talk about are Samantha, who goes by Argent, and Newton, who is the warlord of Athera. Samantha can manifest like this liquid metal armor from her skin, which basically means that Davis has the chance to draw various fashionable skin-tight armor, claw, sword looks, which is pretty cool. Her armor reminds me a lot of Psylocke's in uh, Psylocke's early days. Oh, I completely agree. And Newton's an inventor, but he mostly lives in an alternate dimension that he made a machine to get to, where he, ha like, normally he looks like a little Woody Allen-looking dude, but in that alternate dimension, he made himself a synthetic body that's big and muscly and very scantily clad. Um, his girlfriend in that dimension is uh, that dimension's version of Saturnine, and they have sexy games that involve each trying to take over the world from each other. They're fun. He is drawn to look like a young Woody Allen, which is a little bit awkward these days. It is a little awkward these days, yeah. And, uh, yeah, of course we have Adam, their father, who's been out in space and has been alive for so long that he's very, uh, very distant and sort of emotionally flat. But that's pretty much the family, and so let's talk about, very briefly, what they were up to in the first part of their own series that leads into the X-Men stuff. The first eight issues of Clandestine were written and penciled by Alan Davis, inked by Mark Farmer, colored by Sophie Heath, Helen Nally and or Mark McNally, and lettered by Pat Prentice. 
So we'll just cover this briefly, just because it does lead into the X-Men stuff. But essentially, as we alluded to, the kids mess up the Relative Stranger Protocols. They're off superheroing secretly on their own, and they stumble upon, in one of their missions, one of their bits of patrol, a fight between a couple of groups. On one side, there are these weird, stretchy, monstery people. On the other side are these mod semi-clones with omegas on their chests. And both sides attack the kids, so they beat them all and end up taking away the thing the two sides were fighting over, which was some machine. However, in the process, Pandora loses her cape. It's ripped off by one of the stretchy monster people. They, that group, the monster people, are able to find the K-Sara label on it, kill K, use the journal they found, um, miniature journal that she wore around her neck as a pendant, to track down the rest of Clandestine. And thus, in the early pages of issue number one, we lose a number of characters. Uh, most of them permanently, but not Kay, because she can just reincarnate into new bodies. So, those baddies. The stretchy monstery people are offspring of this guy named Lens, who is a creation of Modok at AIM, who is trying to get that gadget to stabilize the offspring he created that usually died within days. That was bad guy group number one. Bad guy group number two is led by Dr. Hywell Griffin and his mod clone children, the Omegans. Um, Griffin wanted the device to cure his albinism, I guess? To be fair, like, Lens and his monsters kill a lot of people. Griffin really doesn't, so maybe it's kind of weird that he sends his clone army into battle to get a machine for him to cure his albinism, but he's not, like, evil evil. Do Griffin and his, his Omegans have a kind of legion the tv series vibe to you oh they really do yeah his omegans remind me a lot of i don't remember what they were called but um those women with the mustaches and the glowy neck pieces yeah oh, that show was so great so it's important to specify by the way but the dr griffin is spelled g-r-i-f-f-i-n the gadget is called the griffin as well but spelled g-r-y-p-h-o-n which apparently is an acronym for genetic realignment yield polarity harmonizing orientation net Okay, whatever AIM scientist or whoever named that is is so fired. They're gone. Are you kidding? That seems like the kind of thing AIM would promote you for. That's a really good point, actually. Well, the family is saved from their various foes by Adam, who, like we mentioned earlier, comes back from space after the Silver Surfer gives his hippie van a power cosmic jumpstart in one of the single greatest pages I've seen in a comic in my life. So a lot of the series is... The kids coming to terms with the status quo they never knew about, and the family coming to terms with being back together after so many years apart, and all of the assorted baggage that goes with being a family, but especially a weird, long-lived family. Totally. In a way, it reminds me a little of Umbrella Academy, with the family who were superheroes and then there was a tragedy, kind of coming back together after so long and attempting to be functional, but, but I like this better. But honestly, I like Clandestine better than most things at this point. It's so much fun. It's very brightly colored. It totally is. We also get a lot of flashbacks in the first eight issues to Adam's past and thus the family's origin, what with the Crusades and the genie sex. There's not really one big plot line in Clandestine as a series. It's sort of meandering, and it seems intended to be more about character than plot, which honestly I feel great about and makes me want as much Clandestine as possible. Now, Clandestine 9 through 12, as we mentioned, aren't Davis. They're written by Glenn Dock and penciled by Pino Rinaldi and Brian Hitch. 
And they were utterly erased from continuity. When Alan Davis takes back over with the X-Men crossover mini, there's just one panel where Rory's like, I had this weird dream. It didn't make any sense. Well, glad that didn't happen. It's It was erased so thoroughly from continuity that I actually wasn't able to find it anywhere. Apparently these days it's considered to be Earth 95710, an alternate dimension that Rory dreamed about. Welp, that explains it, I guess. And that brings us to X-Men slash Clandestine. Number one, Dreams of Darkest Destiny, and number two, The Destin's Darkest Dreams. Both of these are written and penciled by Alan Davis, inked by Mark Farmer, colored by Joe Rosas and Ian Laughlin on number two, and lettered by Pat Prentice. And we open with pre-X-Men Xavier doing what he did best, which is stumbling into a mysterious cave. This was something that Xavier spent, again, a lot of time doing before putting together the X-Men. This is, you know, we know this is part of Juggernaut's origin story, etc. This is an entirely different cave, though. This cave contains a big Lovecraftian interdimensional horror, which is being held at bay by two of the Destins, uh, Cuckoo and yet another body, and Gracie Gamble, who we haven't met before, a really kick-ass little old lady. Oh, yeah. Uh, Cuckoo is K. Sarah, by the way. I don't know if we mentioned her code name, but yeah, she's been around since the start. I love Gracie's character design so much. Like, she's, she's this little old lady adventurer, and she's kind of androgynous in her clothing, but she's got these gloriously glam winged glasses frames with, like, little gems in the corners. And a giant cigar, always. She's so great. Like, she wasn't in the first clandestine series at all. She just shows up here, and all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I, I guess I like this series even better. Now, Xavier t- helps them take down the, the big Lovecraftian horror. It's a thing called Sinwraith, but Gracie wipes his mind of the encounter. Yeah, see how you like it, Xavier, you jerk. And he doesn't recall it until years later in Westchester, but before then, the original five are headed to the village for the one-night comeback of Bernard the Poet. And I gotta say, I feel so cheated that we are told about this but don't actually get to see it. In fact, I... I am so upset that I am going to ask you listeners to fill in this vital gap in continuity and to send us your best 90s beat poems. And I am talking about not just 90s, but specifically poems Bernard the Poet might have produced in the 1996 Marvel Universe. I wonder how that lines up with that time Vanilla Ice tried to reinvent himself as a metal singer. Oh my god, what if Bernard the Poet became a metal singer? I... I mean, that would be awesome. I would love that. But I I love this part, mainly because we get to see Alan Davis draw so many freaking characters, so many X characters in this series, and his take on the original five is great. I especially like his Archangel. Like, Archangel, you can still see that handsome, confident dude and the Apocalypse Death Machine, like, simultaneously in the same character design. There's also a great line in this scene where where Scott says, with regards to the plan to go see the one-night comeback of Bernard the Poet, It's been a while since we could unwind like normal people. Thus confirming that Scott Summers has zero idea how normal people unwind. And this part's a little weird. So Cannonball's like, hey, I heard y'all were going to see Bernard the Poet. Can I come too? And he's very much in gee whiz new kid mode which okay that works for like rory destin but really doesn't for cannonball we've been over this a thousand times like davis makes it charming because davis makes everything charming but goddamn it he does not get to come along ultimately because he is the new kid and is thus exiled to the danger room to train with storm what i think is that the o5 are just embarrassed about the idea of anyone else seeing bernard the poet because they've built him up as some kind of mythic figure 
I mean, we've both read Silver Age X-Men. I think he's deserving of that reputation. Yeah, yeah, no, it sounds reasonable to me. Now, Wolverine is around too, and he is extremely on edge. His senses aren't working quite right. He's not sure why, but it might have something to do with the giant pink dimensional rift that has just spontaneously appeared in the danger room. So, Forge, Colossus, and Professor X, who were around, uh, join up to investigate, and tentacles shoot out of the rift and grab Professor X. Storm is weirdly low-key about this. Uh, tentacles. Yeah, no exclamation points in that word balloon. But the tentacles pull Professor X and Colossus through the portal, and they land in an isolated hellscape full of bones. So, more on that later, but it wasn't until I wrote Bone Town as my description for this location for like the third time in my notes that I realized that maybe that wasn't the best name for it. Ah, well, let's go to Venezuela. Right. In Venezuela, Gracie, our favorite, is on a dig with some students, and she unearths a dangerous prophecy regarding the return of Sinraith and the subsequent end of the world. And she's wearing a Hawaiian shirt, she's chomping on this big cigar, and... I, I just love all of her dialogue. Like, uh, at, at some point, one of her assistants mentions that she should be careful because she's old, and she replies, I'm only 30, Lisa. I've had a hard life. She's so good. Like, I just want the Gracie Gamble ongoing series to join up with the Reign of X era. Yeah, I am so angry that Gracie Gamble is not, like, at least a regular guest in other comics. And she didn't even show up until the frickin' crossover that replaced the last uh, half of the series. Third of the series. Now, unfortunately for Gracie, by the time she arrives, the portal is already forming. She does some magic to try to counter it, but ends up just suckered into feeding the portal. That's not great. So we've got Xavier going through the portal in one end, Gracie going through the portal at another end. So what's going on in Ravenscroft, where Clandestine tends to hang out? Well, first of all, we get a brief panel of Rory summarizing the last third of the original miniseries as a weird dream he had. Hey, that reminds me. I had a weird nightmare. The family were all acting out of character. William came back from Australia and told us Kay wasn't really our sister. Then Vincent came back to life and... And Pandora butts in. <laughs> Rory, that's stupid. It's not life complicated enough already. I, I love it. Like, with a single panel, Alan Davis is like, you know what? Anybody who touches clandestine but me, erased from history. Now, the bulk of the Destin family, Kay, Sam, Walter, Dominic, and Dad Adam, are discussing chaperoning the twins, that's Rory and Pandora, on their superheroic jaunts, but Kay ends up in a trance, repeating the words Gracie saw in the ruins. At which point, you guessed it, portal and tentacles. This time, the portals manage to grab Kay and Adam before retreating. We get to see the family fight during this, which includes Samantha growing her usual liquid metal exoskeleton out of her skin, at which point she bursts out of her clothes, so take a drink, and specifically out of the lacy purple bra that she is clearly wearing. And I kind of want to talk about the way Alan Davis draws sexiness in general and cheesecake in particular because that is a thing with alan davis so i talk a lot of shit about artists who tend to just draw female characters as pinups and alan davis is a very very good counterexample of how to handle it well if you want to sometimes draw female characters looking pinuppy which is to do it selectively 
to do it at moments when it's narratively appropriate, and also to just be really damn good at it. And there's something about the way he handles sexiness that's sort of, I don't know, for lack of a better word, like, innocent? Like, it's just sort of adorable and happy-making. It's like, oh, those people are sexy, and it's a little exploitative, but not in a way that feels like it's offensive in any direction. It's just fun. It's very, very much traditional old-school good girl pinup art. It totally is, yeah. And to Davis's credit, we definitely get some semi-equivalents with male characters in many of his titles as well. I mean, God, Excalibur was full of that stuff with Captain Britain and Nightcrawler. And how. Mmm. Beautifully is how. So, the Destins manage to track something close to the other end of the portal, and they open another portal which leads them to... The Danger Room. Right. And that takes us to the second half of the series. Now, the cover of Clandestine number two, or Clandestine and X-Men number two, is our first hint that something might be off about the situation. Clandestine is clashing with a whole bunch of X-Men, including a lot who wouldn't have been at the mansion. So members of Excalibur, members of Generation X, and so forth. The cover, which is, of course, a gatefold cover, and I'm sure thus made it even more expensive than the double page count already would have, reminds me a lot of the cover to Excalibur number 14 from the Crosstime Caper. Do you remember that one? I do, yeah. Oh yeah, with like Excalibur on one end and the massive horde of other characters coming in from the other side to fight them. I love this whole conceit, because both on the cover and inside the issue, it reads as just kind of Davis ignoring continuity until it becomes clear that it's part of a significant twist. Right, because that's the thing. Davis is actually paying a great deal of attention to continuity. There's a reason we're covering this right now, which is that this miniseries takes place exactly at this point in continuity, exactly at the point when it came out. Like, the lineup of the team is exactly right, what everybody's doing and what their deal is is exactly right. So, when you see things suddenly deviate from that... You gotta know it's for a reason. Now, everyone fights immediately to the horror of Ori and Pandora, who obviously recognize the X-Men, who, again, whose numbers are significantly expanded from what we saw in the first issue. Even when a momentary truce is established, it's immediately broken because Dominic insists Wolverine is nothing but light and won't stop poking him, which aggravates Wolverine into some stabbing. At which point, everybody punches everybody some more. But I do really appreciate that the way the fight ends is when Rory knocks the, at this point, very large and blue Walter on his butt, the sound of which shocks everybody into listening to Rory. So we have a character who loves superheroes so much that he knows that, of course, superheroes will fight each other based on a misunderstanding— and we have a character who values dignity so much that, of course, the lack of that dignity will be a plot point. Now, the X-Men split the rest of the Destins up, and we see more and more X-characters and eras that shouldn't be there, which is great, because it means that we get to see Alan Davis drawing Sylvestri Rogue, Adams Havoc, Burn Phoenix, Sienkiewicz Warlock, and so forth. Oh, it's great. But yeah, the X-Men are seeming pretty normal, like they're, you know, they understand the seriousness of what's going on, they want to work with the Destins, they're actually being quite courteous to the Destins— but things are just a little off. Certain X-Men character traits are just a little exaggerated. Well, and they seem more and more bent on distracting the Destins from what's going on. And especially from anything involving direct interaction with the portal. 
So, you know, we have Gambit seducing Samantha, although it turns out she's totally playing him. We have Storm very successfully seducing Newton. But I want to talk about the kids. I want to talk about Cannonball and Shadowcat taking Rory and Pandora off and being all hospitable toward them and talking to them about the potential for the kids joining the X-Men. And ultimately it becomes clear that Kitty and Sam are actually trying to separate them. They're trying to get them to go off in different directions so that their powers won't work. And once they realize this, there's this really great creepy close-up of Cannonball's very, like, inviting, wholesome-looking face. It's Alan Davis, so of course he looks that way. But there's this skull in the pupil of Sam's eye. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. Now, meanwhile, in Sinwraith's home dimension, Professor X and Colossus meet up with Kay and Adam, and then with Gracie. And per Gracie, Sinwraith has dragged them there to ensure that its next transition to Earth will be unimpeded. And we also get some backstory about Sinwraith's deal and what his connection is to Gracie. Right, because apparently Gracie and Kay Sarah first encountered Sinwraith when they came to the Americas with Cortez. Ew. Yeah, to their credit, Gracie and Kay did realize that conquistadors were bullshit, and so they tried to help the Mayans out. Gracie, her telepathy was just starting to manifest, and so she used it and sought out a nexus of cosmic power and accidentally showed Sinraith the way to Earth. Whoops. Now, Gracie has dedicated her entire life since to trying to find and stop Sinraith, which means that at this point they've got to figure out a way to anchor it in its home dimension before the dimensional convergence passes, to keep it from passing onto Earth. It'll kill all of them afterwards, But changing the balance of life between dimensions will upset the dimensional balance and upset the potential for portals, so they're sort of safe for the time being. So they try to fight Sinwraith to prevent Sinwraith from getting to Earth. We have the telepathy coming from Professor X, from Kaysera, from Gracie. We have Colossus and Adam trying to fight it physically, and Colossus Oh, man, he gets so seriously screwed up by Sinwraith when he tries to fight it. And ultimately, a partially melted Colossus pitches Adam straight into Sinwraith, and Adam emerges through the portal to the danger room. Now, this time, there are no extra X-Men, and the X-Men he meets say that nobody else has come through this portal either. Everybody thinks that somebody else is trying to control them, At which point, Wolverine does what probably a lot of animated series viewers always wanted him to do, and guts Cyclops. Well, no. What he kills is not actually Cyclops, but a robot covered in solid light holograms. Sinwraith has infiltrated the danger room and programmed drones to stop anyone from going through the portal or stopping him. Storm, aided by Forge, is able to take out the entire system with some very, very directed lightning, and it turns out that... Everyone we've seen is actually in the danger room. They're just stuck in different illusions. Xavier and company haven't been stopping the demon. They've just been pulling it towards Earth, but now they're finally able to throw it back and squish it in the closing portal. And I love this. I love that Sinwraith didn't just say, oh, I'm a big, powerful tentacle monster. I'm just going to kill everyone. But he was manipulating them all very subtly to all get them to just be helpless to stop him. Because all Sinwraith needed to do was to distract all of the various heroes long enough to get into Earth and then, I don't know, just, like, destroy everything, I assume. Right. 
So with Sinwraith gone, Gracie, our favorite character, who's dedicated her whole life to stopping Sinwraith, needs a new job. And Adam determines that, you know, the Destins in general need to figure out what they're going to do next. My family and I are no longer part of the world you inhabit, Logan. We linger like shadowy relics of a forgotten era. It may be that we have had our time. And everyone goes their separate ways. The kids have X-Men baseball caps and pennants, and they get their own training uniforms, and it's adorable. Aw. So this is not actually the end of Clandestine. There was a second series in 2008 that was basically Further Adventures, um, which involved at least an Excalibur cameo. Oh, it's so good. Dominic ends up randomly getting thrown into the middle of the cross-time caper and meeting the team, and it's delightful. They also showed up in the 2012 annuals in Fantastic Four and Daredevil and in Wolverine. And that story was each of those characters, or teams, teaming up with a different Destin, and there was this plot about Vincent, the mysteriously killed by his dad, Destin, coming back. Both of those are great. Like, honestly, my only complaint about any of this stuff is that there's not more of it, because I just, I just love clandestine. It's just pure fun. And with that, you've got questions. Rumbler Fumbler asks on Tumblr, are there any X-Men you would feel less comfortable leaving small children with than Gambit? Rumbler Fumbler asks on Tumblr. I mean, I know, I know you've asked a question before from Tumblr, Rumbler Fumbler, but um, it's always just so, so delightful to get to hear that. Anyway, um, an X-Man I'd feel less comfortable with watching kids than Gambit? Well, okay, based on the current Hellions title, Nanny is kinda sorta an X-Man, so yeah, her. Yeah, I was gonna say Mr. Sinister. Oh yeah, I guess he's kind of sort of an X-Man as well. Yeah, that's true. Either way, it's bad times. Like, either those kids will have their parents killed and their memories wiped, or actually Sinister might do that as well, but then he would also probably make a million clones of them. I don't know if that's better or worse. Feral's never been an X-Man, but she was on X-Force, so I'd say that she counts too. I mean, she kind of sort of kept her sister safe. There was just a lot of murder involved. I mean, I would leave pigeons with Feral. Oh yeah, legit. But... Here's the thing. Gambit is actually pretty great with kids, or at least pretty great with adolescents. Like, he was a genuinely good friend to de-aged Storm when he first appeared, and remember, that was before he knew that she was really an adult who'd been de-aged. He thought she was just a cool kid. And he was a kick-ass older brother-slash-cool-uncle figure to Laura Kinney before she was Wolverine when she was X-23. I mean, he's got cats. He's, he's very good to his cats. Would that make him good with small children? Small children aren't nearly as good as landing on their feet when dropped. Oh, uh, that's true. Um, but in terms of actual X-Men, you know the Submariner was an X-Man for a while. I think I would say him. Oh, I bet he's great with kids. I guess he could teach them to yell Imperious Rex. Fuck yeah, he could. Yeah, I, I feel like when I was a kid, I would have loved to run around yelling Imperious Rex and swimming around and fighting giant octopuses. So there you go. There you go. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Was there any explanation for why Hank McCoy acted like the Thing for the first couple issues of Uncanny X-Men, and then became more proper later on? So, you know how we usually expect the basic baseline development of what characters are like to take, take place before a book is written? Yeah, sometimes that doesn't happen. Yeah, I'm reminded of uh, Scott Summers only getting the name Scott by about issue number three, which, come to think of it, was about when Hank McCoy got the personality that we now know and love. 
Yeah, the X-Men definitely got thrown at the page. I'm more than half-formed, but not quite whole. Our half-formed podcast is fully listener-supported, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Tonight, it is the angry Claremontian narrator here to astound and delight. Look, listeners, normally I try not to harp on the handles you provide us, but Chase, a.k.a. Esme Shadow Magic, you've taken all the name. All of it. There's not even enough left for Ricky to have a surname. You know what? No, no, that's it. I am redistributing. You two are now, respectively, Chase, a.k.a. Esme, and Ricky Shadow Magic. Now go get used to your new names and think about what you've done. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. At least they will once Apple stops being so weird about losing our episodes all the time. And those rarely feature the entire, yeah, lineup of the Miss New York contest. Rarely, but sometimes. You can check out explainthexmen.com for original illustrations to every episode by David Wynn, as well as visual companions. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we'll be vacationing up in the present to talk Krakoa and Way of X. With writer Cy Spurrier. Spurrier.